Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining. I'm back after a somewhat long absence, and it's my turn now to create a lecture for patrons only, which will be on Patreon. Since I've been away, I've been busy with various things. I co-wrote an article which was recently published in Jacobin Magazine. I'll put the link in the description. It might interest you. It has some interesting history. It does not involve guillotines, for better or worse, uh, but it does have some interesting American history, some of which I learned for the first time in researching that article. So if it intrigues you, you can take a look at that. My friend Mike and I have been creating more episodes of our collaborative podcast, Mass of Contradictions, and the latest was about the Massachusetts Constitution and system of government, how that works and where it came from. So if you are interested in that, you'll probably see some similar themes to the Jacobin article. But it's time now for a myth of the month. You probably have noticed these have been somewhat, you know, slow in coming out. They're not really one a month, but I'll try to catch up to that pace if I get more patrons. So tell friends and family and neighbors. And this will be myth of the month number eight about the West in the sense of Western civilization. So not not in the sense of the American West or the Old West, but uh, that's a good topic surrounded by myth too, of course, so maybe I might address that another time. But this will be about so-called Western civilization. And I'm going to improvise and extemporize a little bit when I start off on this subject because I ought to be able to do that because I've taught classes, survey classes on the history of Western civilization, in quotation marks. So I ought to be able to give some explanation of what this myth is, how it works, what purpose it serves, and I'd like to be able to be a bit kinder to this myth than I've been to other ones previously, like the Enlightenment or capitalism. But unfortunately, (laughs) when I was working out my notes, it just didn't quite work out that way. So I'm going to uh, do a lot of deconstruction here too, but maybe ultimately I'll circle back to how this idea of the West as a society or as a civilization maybe could still be useful in some sense. So I've taught classes on the earlier part of Western civilization, basically running from ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt on up through the Middle Ages. And if you know any geography at all, you should be able to see why that's a kind of awkward subject area to pick out for a class, because we're starting out in the ancient Middle East and Near East, and then by the end, when we're talking about the Middle Ages, we're talking about an era that really only makes sense in Europe. So the story kind of shifts along geographically as you go. And the first society I talk about extensively is Egypt, which is so important and foundational for so much of the world. And then we kind of work our way over to Greece and Rome and and then the post-classical medieval European world. And sometimes 
my students will ask me, well, Egypt is Western. It's part of Western civilization. And I have to give a kind of, you know, half-hearted kind of hemming-hawing answer of, well, you know, you don't really have to call it Western, but it's important to understanding where the Western world came from. And yet, by the time we've gotten to the second half of the class, Egypt has sort of disappeared. And occasionally I've pointed out, you know, we've dropped Egypt out of the picture here. Why is that? What is the main language of Egypt today? What is the main religion of Egypt today? And some students will usually be able to say, well, it's in the Middle East. They speak Arabic. They're Muslim. And I say, yes, and that's why our textbook and our curriculum and the media and historians don't talk about Egypt as being part of the West anymore. It didn't move geographically. It's just that what we consider to be Western at different points of time is radically different. And certain people, certain societies, certain places get thrown into that basket at certain moments and then later get tossed out for one reason or another. And really, it should only make sense that that happens because our definition, our boundaries that we put on what we count as the West is always shifting and is always ambiguous. And it's always relative, right? If we stop and think about it, the very word West is a purely relative term. Nothing is Western in any absolute sense, right? In the way you can say certain things are blue or certain things weigh more than 20 pounds. Things are only Western, relatively speaking, compared to something else, right? It's a direction on the map. And not only that, but unlike North or South, there is no West Pole, right? There's no place you can point to on the map and say, well, West means over here, and anything close enough to that we call Western. No, West is simply the direction that the sun sets in, right? And the sun sets over any place on Earth from the vantage point of some other place, right? So when we describe something as being Western or even as the West, it can only make sense relative to and in comparison to something else that is Eastern. Right? That's it. It's, it's a relative term like dark and light or raw and cooked. Right? There can be no such thing as raw if there's no such thing as cooked, as you know, Claude Lévi-Strauss spun a whole book out of. Right? These certain concepts only can exist in contrast to something else. Well, that's true of the whole idea of West. So how is it that we've come ultimately to talk about certain societies, certain ideas, certain people as Western with a capital W, as if it was this absolute definable thing? Well, that was a very, very slow gradual process. And there have been many points in time where people have talked about certain things as being Western, like the Western Church or Western Europe, but without meaning, therefore, that there's some sort of solid, coherent, definable thing, the West. Right? Um, that's really a pretty new thing. That really came about in the 20th century, and it only really became a popular and widespread idea within the last hundred years. And yet we take it and we back project it all the way back to ancient Greece, or sometimes as in the classes that I've taught, all the way back 
to the Bronze Age, right? To the invention of writing and the invention of the wheel. We say there's some thread, there's some through line running all the way through thousands of years of history that we can call Western. Okay, that's that's a that's a really new idea that we're that we then have made into a myth to to explain thousands of years of history, right? So it's easy to make the mistake of looking back in the past and saying, oh, well, sometimes churchmen or theologians in, say, the 12th century talked about the West in contrast to the East, and to think that therefore that means there's some civilization, some culture that is Western and that has continued through these centuries, right? That's the same as if you were to go back through all of history and look for all the places where people have used the word smooth and tried to link all of them together and say this is smooth society or smooth civilization. Now, when when people said we're in the West, they could mean all kinds of things, right? They just meant they were in the Western something, in the Western area of something or the Western branch of something in contrast to something else, and it could mean totally different things. So, for example, Byzantine uh, chroniclers could talk about the Crusaders showing up in Constantinople, uh, and, and they could refer to them as Westerners and to their churches as Western churches. But that has nothing to do then with, say, Western medicine, right? If we talk about Western medicine, meaning medicine based in modern biology and using, you know, allopathic remedies or antibiotics as compared to, say, acupuncture, well, those are two completely different meanings of Western, right? And it's tempting to roll them all together and say they somehow mean the same thing. But here's something ironic. When the Crusaders, who were Western Christians in the terms of that time, when they went and invaded Syria and Palestine, they knew much less of what we would call Western medicine than did their Islamic opponents, right? Those traditions from Aristotle and Galen and and all of their disciples had been carried on and disseminated and developed by people like Avicenna. And the Western Christians knew comparatively little of that school of medical thought. Or even if you want to argue that they knew some or knew a comparable degree of it, there was no reason to call that form of medical thinking Western in any way the same sense that the Latin church that the Crusaders belonged to was Western. Those are two totally different uses of the term. So the only actual connection, I would argue, among these various different uses of Western or the West that we tend to link together is really just geographic, that we tend to use these terms to refer to ideas, practices, people, that come from the western end of Eurasia. Right? All the different societies of Eurasia, and more and more historians increasingly are finding this, all the various societies of Eurasia, Europe, the Middle East, India, China, Japan, have always been very interconnected and have borrowed ideas and practices from one another, mimicked one another. Right? Defining technologies that you might think of as quintessentially western, like gunpowder and printing actually came from China and made their way bit by bit along sea routes or along the Silk Road over to Europe. 
And it's not surprising that at different times, uh, Western ideas and practices like uh, phonetic writing or canon have made their way eastward. Right? And scholars who have studied things like, say, metalworking have found that bronze workers in Renaissance Italy were working with certain alchemical ideas, symbols, formulas that were exactly the same as what alchemists were using in China and Korea. And people through most of our history did not think of these societies as distinct and separate, much less as somehow opposite or inimical to one another. Eastern and Western leaders, emperors, generals have tended to look on one another as peers. The Holy Roman Emperor saw himself as a peer and an equal of the Emperor of India. When uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese sent missions to explore across the Atlantic or down the coast of Africa in hopes of reaching China, they sent messages and letters to present to the great Khan, right, the, the Mongol ruler of the East, whom they saw as their peer and their equal, with whom they wanted to have diplomatic relations. Right? People did not see this somehow this dichotomy or separation between East and West until modern times. And they started thinking this way because they saw their own societies as being in crisis. And they had to somehow rethink and reorder how they looked at the world in an attempt to address this crisis. Okay, but maybe I'll get to that later. So I would say really the only good definition that we should give to the West or Western civilization is the loosest one possible, and one that's simply based on relative geographic position, right? Western civilization is the set of all societies that have laws, customs, or institutions with roots in the Western part of Eurasia, right? And where you even draw that line, what do you count as the Western part of Eurasia? It's ambiguous. It's it's fungible. Some people have also used finer metaphors, uh, to, to try to group together what is the relationship of these different societies, practices, institutions, right? Greek philosophy, Christianity, science, uh, liberalism. And they've said these are a constellation, a constellation of ideas and practices that relate to one another. I think that that's a reasonable metaphor to use, right? It's a useful metaphor for describing lots of things. Right? Things that appear to be related or connected that form some kind of recognizable pattern. Right? But remember that the metaphor is based on constellations of stars in the sky, right? Orion or Cassiopeia. Or... And those constellations are not real. Right? They're an illusion. <laughs> okay? When we look at a set of stars in the sky and say that looks like a hunter wearing a big heavy belt, that's only a trick of our vantage point, right? That they seem to be somehow connected in a coherent form. But it's a total accident. Those stars out there have nothing to do with each other, at least in most instances. They have nothing to do with each other. They just happen to form the illusion of a pattern to our eyes, right? So constellations are a great example of the useful errors that we might make 
in organizing what we see around us, right? They're born out of our instinct to seek out patterns, especially human forms and things like faces in what are really just random scatterings, right, in, in the environment. So when we think about constellations, we're picking out clusters of stars, projecting some sense of a form or an image onto them, and then assigning a story to them, right? Orion is the cosmic hunter, the hunter who chased after a goddess and then was hung up in the sky to be immortal, right? We, we assign myths to these images that aren't really there and that we know aren't there. And yet, even still, uh, modern astronomers who know perfectly well how bogus these stories are and how arbitrary still use these constellations as sort of easy markers, right, for describing the positions of things in the sky, right, where, to, where you find them. And I think when we talk about the West and Western civilization, it's sort of like that, right? There is no definite, coherent, definable thing to be called Western civilization. But in effect, what it is, is an easy way to describe the backstory, the sort of prehistory of modern, industrialized, liberal, democratic societies, right? Western Europe and the United States. If you want to kind of draw a loose circle around that handful of countries, then Western history, in quotation marks, is just trying to go back in time and pull out threads to account for the formation of those particular societies and their beliefs and their institutions. There's a lot of shifting and a lot of ambiguity and a lot of confusion even over exactly what goes into the basket. And I'll talk about that more later. You know, where do you put Finland? Where do you put Tunisia? Where do you put Mexico? But if you want countries that everyone will basically agree on, it's basically Britain and France, and in more recent years, the United States, that sort of everybody more or less has to agree. Yeah, those are definitely Western countries, no matter how you draw it they're in there, right? Everything else gets fuzzier from there. And so you could say that in a way, another possible definition, although one that I don't think is as useful, is just to say, well, the West is simply the group of all countries that resemble Britain, France, or the United States, right? If you've got enough in common, then you can toss it in and say that's West. And if it's too different, you toss it out. And that's, and that's it. But that's more of kind of a snarky definition, right? It doesn't really, it's not really as useful. So as I mentioned earlier, this notion that there is something coherent and definable that we call the West, it really comes out of declensionist history, right? It's, it's an idea that in some ways drew bits and pieces from the Middle Ages or or from imperialism, but it wasn't really put forward in a coherent argument until Oswald Spengler, who was a German history teacher, who wrote a book in which he says that he finished just before World War I and then revised and completed and published the first volume during the First World War. 
So at a time when different European countries were at each other's throats, mowing down hundreds of thousands of one another's men, destroying whole landscapes, and when so much of the best technology, the best science of these advanced European countries seemed to be turned towards total irrational self-destruction, this is when Oswald Spengler put together this book, which he called Der Untergang des Abendlandes, roughly meaning the decline or downfall of the Western region, right? Abendlandes, the place where the sun goes down. Okay. And this book is extremely abstruse, metaphysical. Uh, you know, like many German books, it's hard to read and even harder to understand in translation. But Spengler basically argued that all different societies around the world can experience periods of flourishing where they develop a culture, right? Or in German, Kultur, something, meaning something in between culture and civilization, as we would say in English. But these periods of flourishing can only last for about a thousand years. So he points out there was a sort of golden age of Babylonian society, Egyptian, Greco-Roman, Chinese, others, uh, and that Western society, basically meaning Western Europe, had also gone through a period of success and flourishing, as embodied, say, in the 19th century world empires, but that now they were sort of ossifying. They were starting to decay, right? Their sense of possibility, of, of ambition was wearing out. People were becoming exhausted in a mental and philosophical sense. They were losing their creativity. And, and so they were settling into a stage that he called civilization, right? Which is sort of culture when it's gotten kind of frozen in place and it can no longer adapt, and where it will enter into a kind of long sunset, right? So clearly, previous stories of decline were on Spengler's mind, right? Like the famous decline and fall of the Roman Empire that was chronicled by Edward Gibbon, right? He was, in a sense, trying to do the same thing for Western society in real time. And... Furthermore, he believed that each of these cultures had its own kind of special character, not just a mindset, but you could say a mindset that penetrates down into the deepest habits of everyday life, and that is expressed in art and in language. And in his view, Western society, sort of the late medieval and modern West, was its own distinctive society with its own character, different from simply the Greco-Roman classical world, and which also could not be simply reduced to Christianity either, but which was something more subtle, more essential. And he called modern Western society Faustian. So drawing on this you know, German myth of Dr. Faust, of a man who, according to folk legend, made an agreement with Satan to hand over his soul to Satan in return for unlimited knowledge and power while he remained alive, 
right? And, and in his view, Western society is distinctly ambitious and lustful for knowledge and power. And this is why it had risen to such tremendous technological and imperial power like no previous civilization. But he also believed that this Faustian culture was essentially tragic because the kind of ultimate God's eye view of knowledge and power that Westerners wanted would never be attainable. And he argued that people knew on some level, maybe unconsciously, that they were striving after something they would never have. So Spengler's story has been torn apart by historians in all different sorts of ways, starting really as soon as the first volume was published. And I won't add too much to the dog pile, but I'll just point out that, you know, Spengler clearly is trying to put together a myth, you know, and his myth isn't necessarily entirely false. Right? I think you can see there is a certain interesting insight that he, he captures something distinctive about the mentality of Europeans and Americans in the modern world that does make them different, I would say, from, say, Ming China or, <laughs> or the Mexica Empire in Mexico, right? That there was this aspiration towards world domination hand-in-hand hand with the belief that one can solve all riddles and unravel all mysteries and attain complete knowledge of everything in the universe. This, in a way, is still the stated aspiration of some scientific new atheists, say, who hold that all truths will ultimately be deduced by Western science. You know, and sometimes they even use that phraseology, Western science, in contrast to that, you know, benighted superstition of those other societies out there that will never have our level of enlightenment. You know, you can still see what Spengler would call this kind of Faustian mindset among a lot of modern people, right? So there are insights there, but obviously all these societies we call the West are much, much more complicated than he acknowledges, right? And simply, I would say, just to lump together the medieval Western world with the modern and not to see the tremendous upheavals of thought that had to lead the way to modern thinking, you know, it's, well, it's just very poor history, right? And it gets a lot of people and a lot of events just completely wrong or has to totally ignore them as if they didn't happen, you know, where does even just something as trivial, really, as the Reformation, as the, the dispute between Protestant and Catholic understandings of human salvation and of the sources of truth, where does that even fit in to this simplified story, right? It's, uh, so it, it's a myth, and, and, you know, it has its good points, but ultimately is very easy to disprove. So this philosophy of Spengler's, for all its weaknesses, it was very appealing, especially in the aftermath of World War I, when there was a lot of doubt and a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen to these societies that had just been at one another's throat and had reached a level of mass slaughter never before seen in Europe. 
and where all the technologies that had led to that mass slaughter were still around or continued to advance. This Spenglerian philosophy, as people sometimes call it, really became very fashionable. And it took the sort of you know, middle-brow, pseudo-intellectual world of magazines and lecture circuits uh, by storm. And it happened really hand-in-hand together with, uh, with racial pseudoscience, although Spengler himself was not a racial pseudoscientist. He rejected that, and that is why later in the 30s, he opposed certain tenets of Nazi philosophy. You know, he didn't believe that these supposedly biological categories of Aryan and Semite made any sense or mattered. Uh, But nonetheless, a lot of the same audiences embraced both of these ideas of this notion of the decline of the West and of the infiltration or contamination of the white race or the Aryan race by foreign elements, right? And both of these ideas could speak to the same sort of anxieties. Spengler's notion of the West as a coherent society, a coherent civilization, today it must be so familiar to us that it's hard to imagine that this was really a new way of thinking in the 1920s, okay? In the, in the 19th century, the, the British and, say, the Austrians and the Russians didn't see themselves as having much in common. They didn't care particularly that they all had science or that they all had technology or that they all read the Greek classics. They may have had those things in common, and we can point those things out, but that didn't mean that, they, that these nations didn't see one another as fundamentally opposed, right? Opposed over religion, over language, over government. Uh, Britain was a comparatively free constitutional monarchy. France was a republic. Uh, Russia was a tsarist autocracy. Right? They were as totally opposite as they could conceive possible. Right? And, and they were constantly suspicious of one another. The fact that other nations out there in the world might be even more different didn't necessarily matter. Uh, but these countries began some people particular classes of people, the sort of educated or somewhat educated, uh, literate middle classes in these countries began to think of themselves as part of one larger coherent unit because of the crises they were in, because of their anxiety about where they were headed and what they were afraid they might be losing or what might be inadvertently destroyed in another war or another catastrophe, right? So that's really where our idea of Western civilization ultimately came from, right? But let's say we put aside for a second Spengler's notion about Faustian culture or the Faustian man, right? That's that's awfully squishy, right? There are all kinds of people that you can pick out from supposedly Western society, you know, Franciscan preachers or, or nature poets who don't really fit that model, right? And we have to ask, well, is there something more concrete, something more graspable, historically grounded that we can point to and say, this is what we mean by Western. This is Western society. Well, there are sort of two different 
ways of trying to grasp and define what do we mean by the West. There's social geography, right? Simply drawing what is the landmass or what is the set of countries that we mean and that we'll call West, or there's ideological. But let's say we look at the social geographic approach first and ask, well, what what is the West? What do we see on the map, right? What societies, peoples, countries, regions are we talking about? Well, one is to simply say, well, we just mean Europe. Okay, so the the landmass of Europe and maybe its daughters, right? Other countries in the world like the U.S., Canada, Australia that were founded by emigrants and colonists from Europe. Okay, so that's that's one way of simply saying that's what we mean by West. Well, there are some problems with this. For one thing, you know, Europe is not really even a landmass. <laughs> you know, like it's just one part, one zone of this larger body of land that we now call Eurasia. And most people, if we go back to the beginnings of supposedly Western history, if you go back to the classical world, people did not think of themselves as Europeans. Right? That's just not a concept. You know, if you if we talk about, say, ancient Greece, that's where our word Europe comes from, right? People called the particular landmass that, that Greece was attached to Europa. But they didn't go around saying we're Europeans. They didn't know what most of the rest of Europe looked like or who was there. They knew that if you went up north and west, there were some Celts and some Germans and people like that, but they knew almost nothing about them and didn't care. Those people were barbarians. And in fact, if you'd asked Greeks, well, where is their civilization or culture that you care about? Where is their art or religion that you consider important? They would say, for one thing, Egypt. And secondly, they might also say, well, there are other countries to the east, like Persia. And they're on other land masses, but who cares? <laughs> That's just an accident of geography. They saw themselves as having more in common with Egypt or Phoenicia than with some Celtic tribe up in the boreal forests. So really, when you drill down, Europe is just an arbitrary section of the map with this weird, awkward line drawn up from the Black Sea along the Ural Mountains that has no actual social or historical meaning or importance, right? Russia is a country that straddles the Urals, right? In it's Russia. <laughs> you know, like there, there's no point where you cross a line and suddenly you're like, oh, well, everything's different now because I'm not in Europe anymore, right? So it's really just a geographic designation. Now, later on, the label of European would start to take on a little more significance. And that really began crucially with the Frankish Empire and with the leaders Charles Martel and Charlemagne. Those were the leaders who sort of strengthened and centralized the Frankish Empire and used it very self-consciously as a bulwark 
against the Islamic invasion coming from North Africa through Spain into Europe. And Martel was the first leader to really intentionally present himself as a defender of Christianity or of of Christendom, which could mean both Christianity as a belief system and also the group of all Christian people or the Christian world. And chronicles that described Charles Martel's defeat of the Moorish army at the Battle of Poitiers sometimes referred to the army under his command, not as Franks, but as Europeans, right? And so this is the first instance where we can see people using this really just arbitrary geographic designation to mean something social and political, that this is a distinct society that has to face off and defend itself against an opponent, right? So really... European, since it took on a greater social meaning, it's always been associated in some way with the Latin West as opposed to the East, in this case meaning Islam, right, and the Islamic world, okay. So so this idea of Europe really, when you peel away the surface meaning, it actually has these deep sort of social and religious associations and connotations. Now, as I said, it it comes to mean something more like Western Christendom or Western Christianity, first as opposed to Islam, and then later also as opposed to Eastern Christendom and the Eastern Church. So through most of the Middle Ages, Latin Christianity in the West coexists with the Greek church in the East, centered at Constantinople. And so when people spoke about the West or Westerners through most of the Middle Ages, they meant more specifically in contrast to Eastern Christendom. And it's important to note here that then all of Greece has to be tossed out of the bucket. If we take that meaning of Western, then Greece not only wasn't Western, it was the very heart of the Eastern civilization. So this same society with the same language and a lot of the same beliefs and a lot of the same philosophy that sometimes we speak of as the foundation or the core of what's Western now has to be switched all the way over to being the Eastern sort of arch enemy, right? So the meaning of West, as should be clear here, is is changing is shifting almost, you could say, 180 degrees. Now, later, if we come out of the Middle Ages and we start to talk about the early modern world uh, and the beginning of global trade pioneered by the Portuguese, uh, the slave trade, overseas colonization, when we talk about this era, when people say the West, they often mean the sort of the sort of west as opposed to the other countries that Europeans were colonizing or in some other way mistreating right so now we're talking about the west not necessarily in contrast to islam nor in contrast to the orthodox east which we kind of just don't care about after the fall of constantinople now we're talking about in contrast to asia 
or Asia and Africa and America, right? It's kind of the West versus the rest. And in a sense, that meaning of West carries over then to when we talk about the 20th century and the rise of communism and the Iron Curtain, right? A lot of people in Western Europe, and especially in the United States, started talking about the world as East versus West, not in the sense of Latin Western Christendom or even in the sense of Europe as compared to everybody else, but rather in the sense of the capitalist and free West and the communist and repressive East, right? And this was even dramatized with the sort of division of Berlin into East and West with this wall in the middle. When we talk now about Western civilization, we have another sort of overlay of meaning to it, right? And in that case, uh, places like, you know, Eastern Germany uh, have to be tossed over <laughs> out, of, out of the West and into the East. And Poland, right? Poland is a predominantly Roman Catholic country. It was part of Western Latin Christendom. It was very much connected to Germany and Scandinavia. Uh, it was connected also by trade and diplomacy to Britain and America. There were Polish volunteers who went and fought in the American Revolution. And yet, after the so-called Iron Curtain goes up, we have to start talking about it as the East, right? So it's another example of, of the sort of shifting boundaries, right? But there's still this fundamental sense that the West is different, is whatever the East is not. And usually the assumption is that the East is somehow despotic and repressive, right? Oriental despotism is something that Britons liked to talk about a lot, uh, whereas the West is free and open and dynamic, right? Well, that sense of Cold War, East versus West, of course, couldn't continue after the fall of the Soviet government and the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc. Uh, so now people have, again, adapted and carry over, carried over that sense of the West or Western to mean sort of the first world, right? So there are different s schemas that people use to talk about the drastic economic differences between different countries and the different roles that highly industrialized or core countries play as opposed to countries that supply raw materials or cheap labor, right? So-called peripheral countries, according to some theorists. Uh, so, you know, some, some Marxists talk about core and periphery. You can talk about first world, second world, third world which first developed as a scheme during the Cold War, right, where the first world is the capitalist West and the second world is the communist bloc and the third world is kind of everybody else who's uh, just completely left behind, right? Um, well, you know, the second world kind of went up in smoke, at least the second world that the first world was afraid of vanished pretty quickly. So now we're left with just first and third, right? We talk about the first world and the third world. Uh, that's more of a common notion in, in the United States. In Europe, you more often hear about the global north and the global south, dividing the globe that way, sort of, you know, crosswise instead of east and west. But sometimes these things are almost interchangeable, right? West, global north, west, right? So 
all of these different blobs on the map of what we mean when we talk about the West are all overlapping, but they're not the same, right? And they're all relative to something else, right? In, as opposed to Asia, as opposed to the Islamic Empire, as opposed to the Soviet Union, right? And the boundaries are always shifting, right? And as I said before, the only really consistent ones where we can always say this is definitely what we mean by West are just Britain and France and the United States, or even more narrowly, just Britain, right? It's sort of like when I talked about the Enlightenment, the only thinker that everybody has to agree they're referring to when they talk about the Enlightenment is David Hume, right? All the others are sort of varying shades of gray, right? I, you know, I guess I mean uh, Rousseau, or maybe not. I guess I mean Kant, or maybe not. You know, Hume is the one where, you know, when, when you think Enlightenment, you have to think Hume, right? Well, likewise, when we talk about the West, however you draw it, it has to be kind of centering on Britain. Britain is sort of the Westiest West. Now, a huge problem with any of these definitions or instantiations of the West is how things that seem to be distinctive to the West are really very easily transplantable, okay? Technologies, like I said, like gunpowder or telegraphs or steamships, they get picked up very quickly by all sorts of societies around the world. Printing and books... Uh, the tradition of philosophy going back to Greco-Roman times, the Christian religion, okay, spreads very quickly and effectively in all sorts of societies. Uh, Western languages, right? English kind of took off as the shared lingua franca of the entire educated world in the last 60, 70 years or so, right? All of these things are very transplantable, and there are many different societies all around the world that don't fit into any of these spheres that we customarily call the West, but that have taken on all kinds of supposedly Western traits. You know, we can think of Japan, you know, a very traditional, mostly Buddhist and Shinto society, right? They picked up Western technology, they picked up Western liberal democracy, they uh, picked up American popular culture, things like video games and comic books, and threw them back at us sort of new and improved. Similarly with South Korea. Uh, similarly with Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, also, how about Latin America? You know, Latin America has deep uh, foundations in Spanish Catholicism, the Spanish language, they also have adopted sort of American-style constitutional democracy. Many Latin American countries have industrialized. They have flourishing universities, mass media. You know, it's hard to say why any number of these countries shouldn't be counted as Western. If the U.S. and Canada are, why not them? I mean, by that token, it seems if you reject these countries and say they don't count as Western, there's really no criterion you can point to other than physiognomy, the shape of the, the face or the skin tone of the people who live there. So in other words, uh, unless you just explicitly use racial pseudoscience as, as a crutch, any number of countries around the world now can be called Western. 
In other words, there are two possible responses to this situation of all these various countries with various backgrounds, traditions, geographies, becoming Western in all kinds of social and institutional ways. One is, to, is simply to say really Western means racially white, right? To sort of revert to, to a racial definition and hence include some countries like Israel or South Africa, but not Latin America or Japan. Another possible response, and you might say kind of the opposite response, is to say, well, really, the West is not geographic. It's not really a geographic designation. It's ideological. Subscribing to a certain set of beliefs or values makes you Western, right? And hence, people in, say, Korea might be Western, right? Whereas, if you ask Douglas Murray, people in Europe who may be are Muslim or live with certain Asian or African customs are not Western, even if they live in France or England. So if we say, okay, the West is an ideological category, not social geographic, then we have to ask, well, then what are those beliefs and values? Okay, how then do you define Western ideologically? Well, you could say it's Greco-Roman, right, classical, philosophy? Well, there are some problems with that. What is Greek philosophy? I mean, if you read the Greeks, first of all, almost all of their philosophical tracts, like Plato's Republic or his other writings, are dialogues with people disagreeing with each other, advancing conflicting ideas. And in the mix there, some of, some of those Greek thinkers that you encounter in the dialogues are sophists who are basically relativist and say there is no real truth, there is no real good and bad, everything is just the custom of the country, right? or whatever you can get away with in an argument. And then even if you look beyond those particular writings and try to make some sort of summation, this is what Greek thought is all about, well, you have all these contending, conflicting schools. You have Epicureans who see things completely differently from Stoics, who see things completely differently from Aristotle's school. Philosophy meant arguing. <laughs> there was no consensus there. There was no shared notion about how life should work or what is true or false or what is good or bad. You can see certain shared values and assumptions in their ways of life in the way that people lived, in their customs, in their rituals, maybe to some degree in their poetry, right? But really not in their philosophy. The philosophy is cacophony, okay? And then likewise, if we go forward into the Roman age, there were a lot of Roman Stoics, but they often were dramatically different from their Greek forebears. And not only that, but the way Roman society worked was totally different. Their laws were different, a lot of their deities were the same or close enough to the same, but their laws were different. Their government was different. Uh, the empire centered on Rome was completely different from the small polises of Greece. There's no coherent Greco-Roman thought. It's just not there. What you have is, is a tradition of constant disputation. And you could say, well, therefore, that's Western, right? The tradition of, of debate and disagreement is Western. Uh, and that's fine. But in a way, that's almost like saying, you know, it's a tradition of no tradition, 
or it's a philosophy of no shared philosophy. It's paradoxical, right? And as, as we go and look at other possible meanings of Western, we find more paradoxes like this. So you could also say, well, no, really, Western doesn't mean Greco-Roman. It means Christian or Judeo-Christian, right? And the West are those societies that are Christian, as opposed to its main opposite number, which is Islam, right? As I mentioned before. Well, here's another paradox. Christianity is an Eastern religion, right? It has its roots mainly in Judaism, and it emerged in Palestine in the late Second Temple period, okay? And all of the basic uh, theology and mythology that you see compiled in the Bible has its roots in the Near East, right? In the ancient and Roman age Near East, which saw itself as radically opposed to Rome, okay? You do see some influence of, of the Greek wisdom tradition in some of the biblical writings. That's certainly true. But they did not take that to mean that, therefore, they had anything in common with the Roman Empire or accepted the legitimate authority of Rome. You also have to ask, well, what about if, you know, if Christianity is at root an Eastern, Middle Eastern religion, uh, what about all these other societies that have been Christian for just as long as Europe or longer? Most significantly, Ethiopia, right, which became Christian earlier than any European kingdom did, which has a very deep-rooted tradition of Christian teachings and art. Are they Western? <laughs> or do they just not look the part enough to be called Western? Or are they not rich enough to be called Western, right? If, if we're using Christianity as our ideological marker, then we have, to ask, uh, we have to ask about Ethiopia and also about the very ancient Christian communities in India, right? Which also probably existed before Christianity had reached France or Britain or what would later become France and Britain. Okay, you could say, well, let's make a fusion here that somehow being Western is not just the Greco-Roman heritage, nor is it just being Christian. It's the combination, the synthesis of the two. Well, my question then is, what synthesis? Is there a synthesis? I mean, I think of the early Christians going around uh, destroying statues of pagan deities in order to prove that they weren't real. I think of the common rejection among many medieval scholars of pagan pre-Christian philosophy. This was, of course, not universal. There were others, like Thomas Aquinas and the Scholastics, who were very interested in Aristotle, who drew on Aristotle. But there were others who said, pagan philosophers are not proper to read, and their texts are not proper to reproduce. And when the Scholastics, like Aquinas, came along, where were they getting their manuscripts of Aristotle. They were getting them from Islamic Spain, which was much more diligent in preserving and passing on and teaching those ancient Greek texts. Where was Aquinas getting his gloss, his interpretations of Aristotle? He was getting them from Averroes, from an Islamic commentator. Right? 
where were Western universities getting their medical texts from the Islamic world? So in many ways, this Greco-Roman heritage has really been passed on more by the Islamic world than by the Christian world. And there's been frequent confusion and conflict and anxiety about whether Christians should preserve or learn ancient Greco-Roman knowledge and philosophy, whether that is proper, whether it is a threat to Christianity. And around the same time as Spengler, there were others, including in the U.S., who tried to put forward some sort of idea of a Western canon. Okay, This is at the same time that Columbia University started teaching a course called Contemporary Civilization, which tried to sort of throw the entire canon of Western thought at students. And a lot of the idea was to demonstrate that American society was the true fulfillment of Western history, not Germany, right, which had gone awry with Kaiserism, right? So in a lot of ways, these people who were putting together this supposed canon were trying to claim that they were Western and Germany was not. And during, during World War I, propagandists in the U.S. and Britain referred to Germany as the Hun, right, and cast them as these sort of Eastern barbarians, right? And these university professors who put together courses like Contemporary Civilization imagined that the West was a dialectic between Jerusalem and Athens, right, between the Jewish or Judeo-Christian biblical heritage and the Athenian heritage of democracy and philosophy, and that somehow the modern West was going to fuse these things together in a sort of grand synthesis. Um, well, I don't really see how that worked out. I mean, there are certain thinkers who tried to put these things together, like Augustine and Aquinas. They often disagreed with one another and fought bitterly with one another. And I think that it hasn't really been resolved. And many people still today feel that they have to take one side or another. Right? On questions like questions that people take as deeply morally important, like, for example, abortion, some people take the side of personal freedom, right? the, the sort of liberal uh, notion of freedom, autonomy over your own body. Other people turn to religious teachings and say this is an absolute, uh, this is a moral absolute, right? And really those two views are basically incompatible and nobody's really managed to reconcile them. And one is, you might say, more in line with the tradition of secular political thought and one is is avowedly religious, right? And they're kind of at loggerheads. So you could say, oh, well, the West, therefore the West is defined by paradox, you know, or contradiction, or it's de this is the defining conflict. Okay, you know, fair enough, but that's an awfully loose definition, you know? Then we really only have a very unstable thing that we can even supposedly point to as the West. All of this is, of course, also overlooking bitter divisions within Christendom among different Christian points of view, right? Again, what happened to the Reformation? What happened to the mass slaughter of the Thirty Years' War, where Protestants and Catholics treated one another not only as 
barbarian enemies, but as heretics, arguably the worst thing in the world. Christians are perfectly good at turning against one another, right, over their different understandings of Christianity. It's interesting that recently Douglas Murray, an author that I have spoken about before, in examining his book, The Strange Death of Europe, you know, he invokes this idea of the West very frequently. He doesn't usually define it, right, just like he talks about Europe and doesn't really define what he means. Uh, he recently had a debate at the Ayn Rand Institute over, you know, is something destroying the West, right? And in this debate, he points to incidents that people ought to be more outraged or horrified about, like the uh, mass killing at the Bataclan Theater in Paris a few years ago. And he refers to this event offhandedly as the massacre at Paris, And he's clearly trying to evoke feelings of the West, the Christian West, the civilized West, under attack by this alien, dangerous force of Islam. And he uses this phrase, the massacre at Paris, that echoes, if you might have heard of it, echoes Christopher Marlowe's play from the 1590s called The Massacre at Paris. And that play was about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, in which Catholic mobs slaughtered thousands of Protestants in Paris. So even still today, even when we look at the atrocities sometimes committed by extremist jihadis against the West, in quotes, right? And, and I do believe it is true that those particular people who, who commit those atrocities are lashing out at some sort of vague idea of the democratic, free, capitalist, consumerist Western society that appeals to them but doesn't fully accept them, those atrocities are still minuscule compared to the much more organized and effective violence that Christian Europeans have inflicted on one another, both in the religious wars and in the more modern wars of the 20th century. Okay, well, let's say we put this aside for a second and say, all right, well, Greco Roman. Christian, Judeo-Christian, these things don't really hold together, right? Uh, they're, they're all kind of confused, they're in conflict, they're all fragmented. And we move forward in time and say, no, okay, well, what really makes you Western is being scientific and rationalist. This is something you often hear. This, we, we've heard this you know, a lot from Sam Harris and people like this. The West is fundamentally different from Islam because we're scientific and rationalist, because as, as Douglas Murray's opponent in that debate I referred to said, we have a reality-based philosophy, you know, whereas everybody else in the world is not interested in reality. We have reality, and that's science. Okay. Well, you know, what is science and what is reason? You know, this word we're referring to when we talk about rationalism. What is rational? Well, you know, historically speaking, I would say being rationalist or rational, that's just another word for saying things I agree with, things I think are right. (laughs) People in history who said things that I approve of are rationalist. Everybody else is irrationalist. So what does this mean beyond just saying, well, the things we believe are true and the things other people believe are wrong? Uh, Well, you know, you might believe that, You know, you might agree with that statement. Science is true. Buddhism is wrong. But 
that's not really, that's not a good historical definition. There have been plenty of Western people, including plenty of people who considered themselves scientific or rational, who have believed all kinds of nutty things, right? Who've believed all sorts of nonsense, okay, about, you know, whatever you want to talk about, whether phrenology, alchemy, racial science, you know, all this stuff, we might say, well, that's wrong, but at least outwardly, in terms of the terms, the language, the customs, the symbols, it's all scientific, right? It's just, it's just bad science. It's wrong science, right? So, so you could just say, well, okay, it's not about being rationalist or about being correct. It's about science as an approach to truth, an, apo- an approach to seeking truth, right? Well, the problem here is that the West is actually, although it is the birthplace of what we call science, sort of scientific journals of peer review, the West is also just as mystical as all the rest of the world. And as I've pointed out before, at the height of the supposed enlightenment, there was a a kind of craze for mesmerism and ideas of animal magnetism, right? Spiritualism in the 19th century when Newton's physics was becoming widely accepted and industrialism was taking off, people were spiritualists. They were talking to the dead. A lot of the same people who promoted the idea of the West were also deeply into theosophy, okay, and into, you know, Madame Blavatsky and her sort of mystical visions of past ages. In fact, you can see a lot of parallel and a lot of similarity even between Spengler's philosophy and the idea that there's a sort of deep spirit of each civilization, but it's ultimately doomed to fail. It's very similar to Theosophy and and the Golden Dawn and Madame Blavatsky's visions showing her past civilizations that have been buried in in the earth, right? And, And how every civilization ultimately is destroyed, but they can somehow speak to each other spiritually across time okay a lot of a lot of our scientific heroes like Galileo and Copernicus were also believers in astrology and the idea that our lives and our fates are somehow steered by astral influences from the heavens right and Spengler's philosophy too has a heavy mystical overtone okay he's the one who started talking about European society or Western European society as the West, right? Abendland. And that means, as I said before, the place where the sun sets, right? So it's, it's really overwritten with this idea of a kind of cosmic fate inexorably working itself out, right? And the sun and the motions of the sun are central, of course, to astrology, right? The position of the sun in the different houses of the constellations tell you uh, about the ages, right? The ages of, of the world that we're passing through, right? Um, and really this sort of mysticism, the belief in occult powers, magical powers, divination, it's never gone away, right? Okay, a lot of people still subscribe to astrology. And a lot of people in high places where you wouldn't where we might not ordinarily expect, have invested a lot of confidence and a lot of work and resources into magic. Uh, The very good podcast War College just uh, recently published their interview 
where they discussed how British and German leaders in World War II used magic and occultism as part of their war strategy. Alistair Crowley, the famous you know, mystical sorcerer, one of the founders of the Wicca movement, was given a team of operatives and great resources uh, to try to develop white magic to divine uh, German movements and was given spaces in newspapers to publish sort of mystical poems as propaganda. Likewise, the Germans consulted astrologers and astrological charts as part of their war strategy and arguably even saw the sort of mass slaughter of Jews and other undesirables, not only as a biological purification of the race, but as a kind of mystical sacrifice. Right? And one could go on and on with how these sorts of ideas that we might label as unscientific have constantly gone hand in hand with advanced science and technology and seem to never go away, even in the very upper echelons of so-called Western civilization. So this notion of the West as distinctly scientific and rationalist, it, it really breaks down, right? It does not describe most Western people or most of Western history. It really only describes a certain limited core of people, right, who, who actually work in the scientific field and who, as part of that, reject competing metaphysical or occult ideas, right? And that's really a limited set of people. And there are people like that in other parts of the world. There are people like that who are strictly scientific and strictly rationalist in their worldview in Japan or in Brazil, right? You know, the flag of Brazil says order and progress, right? That was 19th century logical positivism. Arguably, that kind of arch-rationalist philosophy, if you want to call it that, was more influential in Brazil than in any other country. So lastly, we could say, well, or not, not quite lastly, but you could also say, well, the, the distinct ideology of the West is not Greco-Roman or Judeo-Christian or scientific rationalist, but individualist, right? The West is more individualistic than other societies. Well, this certainly seems to be true to a great degree of certain countries, particularly the United States, right, where there's a tremendous value placed on self-reliance and individual free choice, whether it's in consumption or, uh, you know, lifestyle. There's certainly a strong uh, pattern there, right? But how much can we read that back into supposed Western history? You know, we're were the Greeks particularly individualist, you know, more so than, say, India? You know, maybe. There were certainly some Greeks who argued for the independence and the free thought of individual men, right? What about the medievals? You know, as I've discussed before, the, the medieval West had an organic philosophy of society, right? Every person is just a limb on the body of society, on Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, right? And they acted out this belief in rituals like the Corpus Christi processions, right? And individuals who sought their own gain, their own profit, and who ignored the, the norms and expectations of society, they existed, but they were widely scorned, right? 
And in many places, they were outlawed, banished. Okay, merchants were among the most detested people in late medieval Europe. That attitude later changed, as maybe I'll talk about more another time. But there are many societies that we could call Western in all sorts of ways that were not any more individualistic than, say, China or the Inca Empire, right? Sometimes people actually distort the actual beliefs and actions of Western thinkers to try to spin them as being individualistic. You know, an example of that I've talked about is Luther, right? Luther did believe that people should be able to read scriptures directly in their own language. And he believed they should be able to do that so that they would see the same truths that he saw, you know, of salvation by grace, predestination, right? He did not believe in individual freedom of thought or freedom of speech, okay? He was not an individualist in any of these ways, right? He just had a disagreement about how people attained salvation through Christ. But he gets sort of co-opted into Whig history, right, where everything is about greater and greater unfolding of liberty, right? This also you could see as another paradox, right? If you say, well, what defines Western society is individualism. That's sort of like saying, well, what defines our culture is a lack of culture, right? It's <laughs> the looseness of social norms, right? Is that, is that really something that makes a civilization? If a society really is totally individualist and respects the complete sovereignty and free choice of individuals, then in a way it's not a society. That's kind of the paradox that I think people often don't see when they, when they talk about the West. You could say in, in this view... The quintessential Westerner is the person who says, I'm a free-thinking individual just like everyone else around me. I see this as contradictory. Maybe other people find it satisfying. Lastly, another ideological definition you could put is to say the West is sort of everything that contemporary people dislike. The West is defined by imperialism, capitalism, and racism. The West is defined by its oppressive ideologies. Right? Well, there are some problems with this, too. I mean, Western countries, if we're talking about Britain, the United States, France, there is a great deal of imperial oppression and exploitation we can point to. It's certainly there, but this is in no way a distinctively Western thing. You know, should we get into the way the Mexica Empire in Mexico treated the people that it conquered? Should we talk about the mass sacrifices at the temples in Tenochtitlan? How about the Inca Empire in South America? Should we talk about the mass ethnic cleansing? I mean, if, if anything, the Incas were the great masters and perfectors of ethnic cleansing as a strategy of rule. Now, the scale of destruction wrought by these, uh, these other empires that we can point to is not as great as, say, the atom bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, right? But that's mainly because of technological differences, right? There's no basis for thinking that if equipped with similar technologies, other empires from all different parts of the world 
wouldn't have been just as brutal and just as oppressive, or possibly even more so. The Mongols managed to completely wreck and wipe out the great Islamic capital at Baghdad, basically just using hand weapons, you know, without even the benefit of dynamite. So when it comes to imperialism and exploitation, the West is not that different, at least not in terms of its attitudes and its goals. It's not really different from all kinds of imperial powers there have been all around the world. Another irony is also that a lot of the mass slaughter and destruction that so-called Western countries have carried out has been directed mainly at other Western countries. Certainly the West colonized and and exploited most parts of the world at one point or another over the last 600 years. But in terms of firebombing cities, gassing people in concentration camps. Westerners have been most brutal to other Westerners. Imperial strategies that were developed to control colonies, as many have pointed out, usually made their way home and were usually used by governments either against their own people or against their European neighbors. Although we can say, you know, there's there's a lot of brutality and a lot of mass violence in Western history, most of it has not been characterized by racial animus. You know, Europeans are perfectly happy to slaughter other Europeans of one sort or another. You know, and we can see the, the leveled blocks in London or Dresden. This is, this is a grand European pastime, mainly directed at one another. So you could say there's a kind of irony here that, that Spengler put forward his notion of the West right in the middle of one of these great cataclysms of mutual destruction between European countries. And in a way, his, his philosophy, it's pessimistic, it's tragic, right? But it's also classic declensionist history in that this is an individual who's trying to take a bigger, broader view and look at history from a greater distance to try to grasp the crises happening around him, right? You don't necessarily look at the big picture of a society and how does it work? What are its underlying assumptions, its underlying mechanisms? You don't think about those big picture questions until you are in trouble, right? Until you see something is turning out the wrong way, right? And Spengler's philosophy of the West, uh, it's declensionist and there tends to be very often a connection, uh, a sort of harmony between declensionist views of the world and conspiracism. Right? If, you're, if you're confused, if you're worried, why are things going the wrong way? Why is the world as I know it breaking down? You often also will point to some sort of potential conspiracy, right? Some sort of hidden forces that must be acting behind the scenes in an invisible way, causing. In the 20th century, these sorts of conspiracist ideas have often centered on Jews, sort of classic old favorite, right? Marxists, anarchists, right? Some of whom were genuinely revolutionary conspirators, right? And also in more recent years, postmodernists, right? 
kind of relativists, uh, deconstructionists, who are very influential in academic thought, probably not much in broader society outside of those academic circles. And sometimes all of the above. You probably know who I'm thinking of, who, who likes to talk about postmodernist neo-Marxists trying to tear apart Western society from within, trying to destroy Western values and traditions, right? You know, this is a kind of conspiratorial thinking, although it's not, you know, like the protocols of the elders of Zion. It doesn't allege an actual intentional secret operation, but it's along sort of similar lines. And you can see how this kind of conspiracism is almost, psychologically, it's almost inseparable from the very idea of the West or Western civilization. Because when you put different countries, different societies together, and imagine that they constitute some larger whole, like Spengler does, you're sort of positing that there's a larger body, that what seems to be a complete nation is in fact just a member of this larger living body a body that has a limited lifespan, right? That is aging and possibly dying, right? And when you think about things as a body, that calls up a lot of common fears and anxieties about bodies. That not only that they age, but they also become infected, they become contaminated. People naturally have a strong self-awareness about their bodily integrity. Is their body being somehow invaded? Is it being poisoned? from outside, right? And a lot of the same anxieties about foreign impurities breaking down Western civilization, whether it's, it's Jewish or Marxist or postmodernist or whatever, they echo a lot of the same sort of fears that people had back in the 1300s when the high medieval civilization was going into crises and starting to break down. I think I talked about this in my lecture about the late Middle Ages. There were food shortages, famines, plague, and people very quickly started to turn to scapegoats and to imagine conspiracies that were literally poisoning Western Christendom. And the first scapegoats they pointed to and blamed for these disasters were the lepers, right? People with leprosy, who were treated as sort of internal outsiders, internal aliens in society. And people imagined they were poisoning the wells, right? And then from there, it turned also to Jews and to heretics. And then in the 1400s, it began to turn to witches, people who were secretly in league with Satan, right? And it's easy to see a lot of uh, parallels, for one thing, between the great witch hunt and fear of communism, right? the, the sort of red scare and Cold War paranoia of communist infiltration. Right? Anyone who's talked about Arthur Miller and the Crucible knows about those parallels that have been pointed out. Right? Well, you know, we don't, we don't really have communism to be afraid of anymore. At least, you know, China's a communist state, but nobody seems to care. But there's still this sort of fear of cultural Bolshevism or cultural Marxism, as it's now called, right? Undermining the West, sort of like an invisible infection, uh, weakening 
the body. And a lot of this, this sort of thinking you can see has developed a lot, particularly in Germany. You know, for one reason or another, Germany has really been the sort of crucible, okay? Germany and Central Europe were the great epicenter of the witch hunt. About half of all the people prosecuted as witches in the early modern age were in the Holy Roman Empire. You can see it in, again, the, the fears of, of cultural Bolshevism, of Jewish conspiracies, sometimes Jewish Masonic communist banker conspiracies, uh, these sort of insidious Eastern influences, right? You can see it in Spengler, which has some parallels, but is a different philosophy, right? It's not, that is, it's not the sort of anti-Semitic philosophy that led into, into Nazism. But you can also, of course, see it in, in Nazism. Today, there is still this heavy German background to thinking to our ideas about the West and Western civilization, but they've really taken off now more in the English-speaking countries, right? In Britain and the United States and Canada, right? And this is where these same sort of ideas about the rise and fall of civilizations, about clashes between inherently opposing civilizations, clashes between East and West, the internal weakening of the West by infiltrators from the East. These sorts of ideas are now really strongest in the Anglophone countries. You might say they, they sort of had their day and didn't turn out so well in Germany, but they can still be adapted and revised. Now, all of this still is not to say that people who are concerned about the decline of the West or Western civilization are not onto something or don't have valid points. You know, if you look at the debate that I referred to uh, with Douglas Murray, uh, maybe I'll put a link in the description, he, he restates a lot of the same concerns that I noted in his book and that I consider to be the strongest and most persuasive and possibly most important part of his book, The Strange Death of Europe. And Murray complains that no one seems to be addressing that part of the book. And that's where he discusses this sort of ill-defined, inchoate anxiety, this kind of existential unhappiness of young people in the industrialized European countries and in North America, where people feel anxious, uh, they don't have a sense of purpose or direction in their lives, and they are very often and very easily attracted to ideologies with a clearly defined mythology and statement of mission, right? whether that be, say, right-wing neo-fascism or Islamic jihadism or any number of others. And that in, in Murray's view, there's a kind of void where Western ideas seem to have played themselves out. There doesn't seem to be anything more on the agenda to accomplish other than just consume things and have sort of, uh, you know, base pleasures uh, of, of leisure and consumption. So the question then is, well, if, if the West is such a ramshackle, unstable idea, and if it really, as I would argue, papers over massive rifts 
and conflicts and changes in beliefs that have happened in Western Europe and America through the centuries, then where do we turn for recourse to this problem? Where do we turn for a sense of connection to the past across generations, a sense of core beliefs, a sense of a way of life, a sense of a purpose in time and history? Where do we get those things if the West is just this kind of phantom or mirage? Well, you know, I would simply, in response to that, I would simply point out that, as I've explained, through most of supposedly Western history, nobody thought of themselves as Westerners. Right? They might have identified themselves as members of the Western Church or something like that, but they didn't go around saying, I'm a Westerner, I love the West. They were going around saying, I am Irish, or I am Polish, or I am Florentine, and those are my beliefs, my loyalties. That's the way of life I believe in. That's how I situate myself in the world, and they got their mythology from that. And if we're going to talk about a bigger, much more abstract, much more diffuse, much more ambiguous entity like the West, it's really not going to mean anything. It's not going to provide that sense of situatedness in the world, that sense of purpose or identity, to use the big I word, unless it is rooted in those more local identities. You can't really conceive of what it is to be, say, European if you don't have some sense of what it means to be Dutch or Portuguese or Scottish. And if those things can't be reconciled together into a greater European whole, then it really doesn't mean anything. The concept of European is just not useful. And likewise with the idea of Western. Right? If you're concerned, then, I would say, about the fate of Western society or Western civilization, then look first to your own local world. What is your city, your state, your community? And how can it be strengthened? And how can life be improved? And how can its traditions be preserved? Before you then try to talk about this bigger, airy abstraction of the West, right? And if you try to skip, I think, across the local to this bigger global regional category, it's it's going to go haywire. You know, you're going it's going to be surrounded by fear and confusion and conspiracism and possibly racism. Uh, so I would just say if you if you want to know what I think, the local has to come first, right? Just as you can't really be a citizen of the world unless you're first a citizen of a place that is located in the world, likewise you can't be a Westerner unless you are a Canadian or a Dane or a Greek or something else. And that has to really mean something substantively in terms of what you believe and how you live before there can then be such a thing as the West, right? So I would say take care of the local and the West will take care of itself. So thank you so much for listening. You know, again, please comment or email me and tell friends to listen. If you found this interesting, people can see what they think about it if they become a patron for any amount, even if uh, just a dollar. 
Uh, so thanks again, and I'll talk to you again soon.